My turn for the intro <laughs> of our episode, and I suck at these, so uh, <laughs> that was a pretty good me we'll just... Pharaoh impression. Here's mine La 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 la, Rosemary's baby. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, welcome to episode 28 of Film is Lit, the podcast where Danny and I discuss an adaptation of literature. <laughs> That's about as good as my intros get. <laughs> Amen. My name is Danny. Pronouns he, him. I'm the film expert. And I'm Laura, she, her, and I am the film expert. You're, I'm the film expert. You're the literary expert. I literally cannot get this right. Literally, this is my podcast, and I cannot get my intros right. I forget. My apologies. I, I didn't mention it. A couple episodes ago, but there was another time. I think it was on the Emma episode where you're just like, <sighs> I'm like, I'm Danny. I'm the film expert. And you go, I'm Laura. I'm the film expert. I didn't realize it until I was editing it and it was too late. I can't so. get it right. Get it together. God. No, not God. Devil. That's actually one of my points about this book is that there's a lot of subtle religious language in here. Whether you believe in the big man upstairs or the big man downstairs, this book is not too kind on your beliefs. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. Well, let's introduce what book we're doing right now. Today on the pod, the book and movie in question is Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby. 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 Written by Ira Levin in 1967. And directed a year later by Roman Polanski. Only a year later. Yeah. It's so mind-blowing. In, in 1968. The rights to the book were probably bought by Paramount before the book was even out. I mean, that's, I, I, that's typical for a lot of stories in modern times, but rarely in the 60s was that a practice. But, I, I yeah. was going to say, I can imagine that people would be very excited to buy something from Ira Levin because he was already a pretty successful playwright and novelist. Ooh, I didn't know he was a playwright. Yeah, he wrote The Stepford Wives, which what? is really, yeah, which literally, I mean, how many authors have the distinction of coming up with a literal common phrase yeah. in American language? I think it's pretty cool. So he, he also wrote Death Trap. Isn't that a movie? Yeah. Oh, that yeah. That was a play. Yeah, he wrote that. Wow. Isn't that, he was prolific. He won a Poe Award, which in literary circles, that's like a, you know, thriller horror award. And later in life, he won something else. What did he win? There was another one that he won. Anyway, he was a very distinguished writer. So I can imagine if people found out that he was writing a new novel, they would snap up. Because he has a very theatrical way of writing yeah I'd and i think that's so. why it translates so well to the screen i have nothing but good things to say about this book let's just jump in immediately i have yeah. nothing but good things to say about this novel a couple critiques to the movie but overall it's an incredible adaptation I, i'm just gonna say it, four out of four for both right yeah now. <laughs> same here i know that's a little boring for us to come out and say four to four for both book and movie. However, it's more than a classic. It's a classic that has spawned, pun intended, oh, yeah. so many inspirations and copycats and not necessarily superior movies, but movies of high quality horror movies. Well, and not only that, but as you say, it really laid down the groundwork. I have this whole 
thing in my notes about how we're in sort of a revival of the golden age of modern horror and thrillers. Yeah. And this book, along with a few others, really, I think, laid down the groundwork for the transition of horror from the castles and the woods woods and the European settings of Frankenstein and Dracula and really brought it into the modern American suburb. That was sort of the transition that was happening during the 50s through the 70s. And now what's kind of been described as the golden age of American horror writing. And when you think about that, again, I I would claim that we're in sort of a revival of that period because I think we're turning away from things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and we're getting back to stuff like Get Out, which is very similar. You know, the, the horror is in the people that you know, right? And the evil comes from your strange neighbors and stuff like that, or, or your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Another example that I came up with was the show Dead to Me. Very similar. Maybe I shouldn't totally spoil things, but basically the show is about a suburban mom who ends up committing a crime and has to figure out how to deal with it. That's very next door kind of plot line. And I, I really think that people are digging into this, especially because nowadays we have such political tension and you can find out that, you know, your next door neighbor is a Trump supporter and that really changes your perspective on things yeah. about that person. Like, I think that this is really coming into its own again because we have some new things to dig into. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Get Out because the term that came out of the movie Rosemary's Baby was urban horror right. slash domestic horror, which you said. Yeah. And Get Out, amazing movie. One of the best movie of the 2010s. It's in my top 10 it, yeah, movies. Yeah. It's in my top 100. Like I said, easily one of the best best movies of the 2010s. However, it owes a lot to Rosemary's Baby. And it's not even about Satan or, or, yeah, or devil worshippers. But very similar situations. Situations where right, there is a fish out of water, kind of a vulnerable but pure protagonist who is caught in the middle of neighbors or new friends who secretly belong to this evil society. And yeah, the evil, exactly. you know, in, in Get Out is is much different. It's not about Satan. It's about, you know, swapping bodies with black people. But other movies that have come out of Rosemary's Baby, movies like Hereditary, uh, Midsummer, mm-hmm. which I love. Yeah. I love both those movies, but they owe everything, like from the naked old cult worshippers standing around a bed. I mean, straight from this story, The Omen, The Brood, Devil's Advocate. I haven't seen most of those movies. Yeah, so. they, they're <laughs> but... all, all great movies on their own, but all the inspiration. I mean, you can trace it directly back. Absolutely. To this. And oh, and sorry, the last one, I just thought about this. We had just recently watched this, The Invisible Man. Oh about, my God, yes. So that, that entire movie is about uh, domestic yes. terror, gaslighting, and the horrors that go on inside the home. Absolutely. I mean, that just misses my top 10. Right. That yeah. movie is so good. Go watch it if you haven't. Right. And you're talking about the renaissance of horror. I mean, Get Out and Invisible Man, amazing movies on their own, but they're right. really smart horror movies that have turned the horror genre into a place where you can talk about these sensitive topics like domestic abuse, like gaslighting, like victim blaming. Exactly. And you know what? That's what I love about new horror movies. Yeah. Because I'm not a huge fan of monster films, but 
what really shines in urban horror is exactly what you were saying. The fact that we have now broken through the glass ceiling of being able to talk about things like marital rape and and domestic abuse and racial profiling and the violence and the trauma that those things cause. And what's so interesting about this genre to me is that it's not the scary devil or cult yeah. that is obviously sort of the catalyst to things happening. But for example, like in this movie and in the book, the rape scene between Rosemary and the devil when you're seeing the devil, it's almost comical. Like there are those big sort of hands that he runs across her body and his face is kind of silly. It's not scary. Yeah. And I think the point of that is to say like the cult and even Minnie, she's very silly. She's yeah. a silly character. And all we of the people- yeah, well, yeah. And on, all of the purpose, people yeah. who are in the Satanist cult who want to bring the devil into our world are absolutely ridiculous characters. Laura Louise, absolutely ridiculous. Oh, don't get me but, started about that piece of shit. Yeah, but but here's the thing. Those are almost red herrings in a way. We're yeah. not supposed to focus on the fact that, sure, the devil is scary in theory. What we're supposed to focus on is the fact that Rosemary's husband, Guy, sold her body to the devil so that his career could be furthered in Hollywood. And he literally raped her and then allowed the devil to rape her. Those are the things that are really horrific. Those are things that we really need to be scared about. Yeah. Gaslighting. Oh my gosh. This yeah. entire book, literally what is the scariest part of this novel? It's when Rosemary is running away from Guy and Dr. Saperstein and she runs to the person that she thinks she's going to be safe with, Dr. Hill, and he turns around and calls the two people that yeah. she's least safe with. Throws her that straight is, to the wolves. When I was reading that, I almost threw the book across the room. Yeah. I was so angry because like that whole idea that men only trust men and, and nobody listens to the hysteric female who's just pregnant and kind of running on hormones yeah. is, that is terrifying. And then it, I, you know what? It's so interesting that a male author and a male director handled this content so well. Yeah. That is, and it's also kind of a little ironic with Roman Polanski's personal life, which I don't know if you're aware of. Not really, slightly. We'll, but we'll not get into a it a little bit later, but we should say, I mean, it's a little late now, but full spoilers. <laughs> we kind of gave away everything, but full spoilers for both the book and the movie. Of course. Full spoilers. Yeah. Everything that can be spoiled, we're going to try to spoil in our analysis. I always just assume that people read the bios and yeah. we say no spoilers, but we should right. say that at the top of the episodes. Yeah. But yeah, just to kind of top off our little intro there, the most important line in the entire book and movie is right in the beginning and you think it's kind of a throwaway line when Rosemary and Guy turn the house and the kind of the landlord is talking about the sisters that mm -hmm. ate the, I forget their name but Guy's kind of a little trepidatious but then Rosemary goes awful things happen in every apartment right <laughs> and it's like oh therein lies the message you know it's easy to look at a couple and say oh they're doing fine or yeah. they're doing great and they have a, a fruitful life however behind closed doors awful things are happening or can be happening <laughs> that's mm -hmm. not the case for every couple but you know every couple has their ups and downs and there are things like domestic abuse and victim blaming that a lot of times you can't see until it's too late mm -hmm. 
And that, that's another thing about the whole story, especially in the movie, is that by the halfway point, you kind of know what's going on. Definitely. You, you, you know exactly what's going on. In the movie, it's a little more clear because they show what you think is a dream sequence, but it turns out to be the whole ritual with the cult bringing Rosemary down to the basement so she can get raped by the devil. It's kind of clear at that point, oh, this is... This is really happening, and that's a, a line uh, from both the book and the movie where Rosemary goes, no, this isn't a dream. This is really happening. Yeah, so nice th- me a pharaoh. Right, so, you know, when the inevitable conclusion comes, it works not because it's a surprise, but because, well, it is inevitable. That inevitability is horrifying. We're watching her this whole time, waiting for her to make this dreadful discovery, and we're wrenched because we couldn't help her. Yeah, and when I was doing research for this episode, one of the things I came across was that Ira Levin came up with this idea when his wife was pregnant, and they were anxious about having a healthy baby. Yeah. And the thing that really strengthens his writing is the realism. Everything in this is absolutely grounded in realism. And so something as simple as your wife getting pregnant or a female getting pregnant, and that's really what the point of view in this book and movie are about. It's kind of about when a woman gets pregnant, she's absolutely inundated with gender role expectations. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, that's really toxic. Of course, it's not realistic to have your partner sell your baby to the devil, but it is very realistic that she would be expected to wait hand and foot on her husband, especially during this time period, even though she's pregnant. Right. (laughs) She has to endure guys' immature, selfish brutish behavior toward her this entire time, but still be almost motherly toward him. Yeah. And it's not out of the ordinary for modern women for that to happen as well. And it's something that is very scary for people to at least me to contemplate that that would happen. Hopefully it doesn't. Can you make a promise that it won't happen when I get pregnant? (laughs) I can't make a promise, but I can strongly suggest that this maybe won't happen. I don't know. Just kidding. Um, So Journeys with the source material. So I saw the movie way back in seventh grade and I saw it on cable because I I knew about it. And at that point in my life, I was looking up best of lists, like the top 10 drama movies, top 10 classics, top 10 horror movies. And Rosemary's Baby is usually on the top of almost every list in ter- in terms of horror. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not. The Exorcist is probably number one on most lists, but Rosemary's Baby is like two or three. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is beloved and rightfully so. So I caught it on TV, most of it, but I wasn't old enough to really appreciate it. And plus, you know, I, I didn't catch the full thing. I was on TV and it was edited. So I, I really didn't come with appreciation for this movie until much later, until now, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I read the book for this podcast and I was blown away by the book. So gripping. It's the perfect length, like six hours for the audiobook. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just flies by. It's it's not too long, not too short. Exactly how long it needs to be from start to finish. It's gripping because, again, the suspense doesn't come from figuring out what's happening. The suspense comes from knowing what's happening exactly. and just waiting for Rosemary to catch up and knowing that it's too late to help her yeah. or to stop, even if you could. So love the book. Next to 112263 and Dune, this has 
to be my like third favorite book. Oh I mean, wow! Yeah, I mean, eleven twenty two sixty three Dune. Those are god tier, so those probably are aren't gonna <laughs> never gonna topple. Never topple. Maybe. I mean, we'll see. But Rosemary's Baby is right behind there. I loved it. Yeah. I was surprised at how much I loved. I'm it. I'm surprised how much you loved it too. It, it is so gripping, and it is. Yeah. And it's. A part of it is kind of sinisterly funny because you're just Mm -hmm. watching these cult members slowly manipulate Rosemary and you know what's going on the whole time. And you're just like, oh, Rosemary, just no, don't drink the Tannis uh, smoothie. Don't don't wear the Tannis charm. Yeah. And just knowing that, oh, Dr. Saperstein is probably affiliated with the cult in some way. Don't don't, don't tell them where you're going to go with Hutch. Oh, my God. And then, yeah, when she says, yeah, and then Guy's like, oh, I'll be right back. Back. You're like, fuck. He's gonna get the claw. Yeah, it's yeah. Ah. love. You're the... right. It's pretty funny, pretty yeah. comical in that way. Yeah, yeah, dark Darkly humor. Comical. Yeah, yeah. And then we watched the movie last night. I wrote this anecdote down. By pure coincidence, we ordered mm. pizza from uh, Lucifer's Pizza. We literally didn't even think about it. <laughs> on on Melrose, there's a place called Lucifer's Pizza. It's pretty good. Oh, I mean, get the Veggie Supremo pizza. Yeah. That's like top tier Or pizza. the uh, Soprasada, right? We also got that. It's not my favorite, but it is very good. It, it was good, too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we got Lucifer's Pizza <laughs> and sat down and watched Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> The movie is two hours and 17 minutes. It feels much shorter than oh my that. Gosh. It flies by. It I mean, really does. it's certainly not a short movie, of course, but it does not feel 137 but minutes. But compare that to we just watched Wonder Woman 1984 on Christmas, and that literally felt my entire life pass. Yeah. That felt like the longest movie I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and That's sitting, a long one. Only felt... a couple minutes longer. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Just steer clear of that stinker i'll yeah. just say that much for that movie big old stinker but watch the movie for the first time from start to finish now i can actually enjoy it and appreciate it for mm-hmm. what it does and i firmly understand why it's a horror classic if not just a classic in general I absolutely mean, say what you will about roman polanski i i think he should burn in hell but this is a situation where we can separate the artist from the art it's ironic that Roman Polanski made it in the first place, but the movie itself, what a gem, what a perfect movie. I loved it. That's my journey. How about you there, Lore? Well, Rosemary's Baby is definitely another movie, kind of like The Shining and Silence of the Lambs that I steered clear from for a long time because all I knew was it was a horror movie. And as I've said probably multiple times on the podcast, I did not discover my pure love for psychological thrillers until college when I watched The Shining. And so this is not a movie that I ever would have watched by myself, nor was it a book that I ever would have picked up without the podcast. And that is unfortunate because like Danny said, I flew through this book. In fact, I didn't take a single note outside of the margins of my book. And I usually scribble things on scrap paper just to remember what I want to say about the book for the podcast. But I didn't take a single note because I could not put this book down even to go find a piece of paper and a pen. I was absolutely gripped. And like Danny said, it was so darkly comical, but thrilling to know what was going on. Literally, as soon as Guy said, let's have a baby, I was like, he he fucking, he sold it. He either sold his devil or he sold it to baby. I was like, (laughs) it's like Ira Levin sets it up so well. He wants you to figure it out super quickly. And so I just had such a great time reading this book. I can't believe this is the first time. I'm sure it will not be my last. And then... 
when we watched the movie last night, I was expecting not to be blown away, especially because it was made right after the book was written. And I actually think the book holds up surprisingly well for, yeah. again, as a male author to be describing a very intense female experience so well. I was expecting to go into a movie directed by a male and just sort of have it blow up and not hold up, mm -hmm. but it really does hold up. I was really yeah. impressed. I only know a little bit about Roman Polanski's personal life, but the extent that I knew of, I just sort of figured he would not handle this material very well. Yeah. <laughs> but I did find myself really enjoying it. And it is so faithful to the book that there's literally very few flaws that I can find in the movie. Right. Let's talk about that. Let's get into the compare and contrast part of the pod. So author R11 talking about the movie said, quote, this is the single most faithful adaptation of a novel ever to come out of Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, we've talked- that quote as well. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about other books on this podcast where it's pretty one-to-one -one comparison. This is the same where, yeah, one-to-one, -one, almost scene for scene, beat for beat, there are a couple scenes that are simply taken out of the movie for timing. But nothing feels like it was missing. Like, there wasn't yeah. a moment where I was watching the movie and I said, oh, I wish that had been in there. I actually, when I was doing research, before we recorded, I was finding things and saying, oh, I forgot that was in the book. Yeah. Because it, it didn't feel missing from the movie. Right. Yeah. Producer William Castle, he speculated that the reason that the movie was so close to the book was because it was the first time Roman Polanski had ever adapted another writer's work. Yeah. He used to write all his own films, and he only made a few films before this one. And he, he was unaware he had the freedom to improvise on the book. And improvising was another thing that Roman Polanski did not do. He was very structured and ordered, mm -hmm. almost to a fault. He really pissed off his crew because he had such a regimented schedule and he would also work during lunch and like work overtime, which you don't have to be in the film industry to know yeah. that working through lunch is a huge no-no and yeah. a big pain in the ass and it pisses everyone off, actors, crew alike. Oh yeah. To just go, I mean, you gotta eat. Yeah. <laughs> and so- And you're usually gonna work a 17 hour day anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> Not getting your lunch break is a big deal. Right, and John Cassavetes, who played Guy in the movie, he clashed with Roman Polanski because he wanted to improvise. He wanted to feel out Guy's character. And Roman Polanski very much was like, this is who you are. He would not allow any improv at all. And so that's a little behind the scenes tea that John Cassavetes and Roman Polanski used to fight. I was going to bring up another example of a one-to-one -one comparison of book to movie. It's The Princess Bride. It's so interesting to literally watch the book happen in front of you on screen. Yeah. Like there were times where I was literally picturing myself looking at the page, watching that scroll behind the actors. There's a scene in particular where Guy tells Rosemary that he wants to have a baby. And he says, you know, baby, goo goo gaga, dada, poo poo. Like <laughs> that line is literally in the book. Yeah. And I just, it's so interesting to watch that. And Princess Bride is very similar. It, the script was written by the author. So it's literally, you can just watch the book almost as you watch the movie. Yeah. And I was familiar with the cast of this movie going into the book because it is such an iconic movie. Yeah. So when I was reading it, I was pretty much imagining Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes act while yeah. I was reading the book. But you 
know, speaking of actors, Ruth Gordon as Minnie. I oh. mean, could you find a better actor? So I, I actually did not know that she was in this, or I didn't know that she played Minnie. So... I guess my imagination of her in the book wasn't as nutty as the movie, but watching this, I mean, that is a perfect interpretation of who this person is. Yeah, and it, the, perfect. the Academy agreed because she won the Oscar for right. Best Supporting Actress, which is awesome because horror movies, they never win Oscars Absolutely. like this. Absolutely. Well, and the funny thing is, she's not a scary person. Right. The entire story is just about her being this sort of annoying New York woman. Nosy who, to a fault. Nosy to an, just annoying as fuck. Like yeah. she pushes herself into the house every time she comes by. She literally takes knitting with her, critiques Rosemary's decorating. Yeah. I mean, this is someone that you could have, again, in our apartment. There yeah. could be an older woman who doesn't leave us alone and cooks terribly, but well, invites us to dinner every night. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to go to a personal example. I had a teacher in high school who I love, but you couldn't talk to her in the hallway because she mm -hmm. would just talk and talk and talk. And yeah. you would be late to class and she wouldn't she and she was beloved by everyone so you could kind of say i was late because i was talking to mrs blank i won't tell her <laughs> name but it's that thing where you love her and she's so motherly and supportive but her nosiness and the boundaries she would cross right. holding you hostage while talking it just kind of was every time you'd see her you'd want to <laughs> not every time i'm being a little harsh here but i'm just saying that sometimes if you're in a hurry if you and you'd see her in the hallway you'd walk the other direction right well there's that great scene in the book and the movie where minnie comes to the door with the chocolate pudding yeah and guy goes to open the door and rosemary's like not tonight not just now don't yeah let her in not tonight please do not let her in and of course you know that she's not going to come in because it's been planned that she's dropping this chocolate pudding off because there's sedative in the chocolate pudding yeah. but when guy closes the door rosemary's like oh thank god yeah. <laughs> you know right. but yeah like again that goes back to the realism that everybody has an older neighbor like that of yeah. course i've had people in my life like that where it's like you have to just acquiesce to what they want because you can't really pull yourself away but there are so many boundaries that are crossed and you're like come on <laughs> yeah or, or a landlord for example that, oh that's a better one yeah, I, I want to kind of i i feel again i feel like i was a little harsh on the oh, teacher i was talking you can't about be harsh enough yeah. on our property manager yeah so yeah oh let me say God. i love that teacher she was formative in my youth let's go to a negative example no, here this, yeah our landlord this guy yeah. literally exactly like minnie pushes himself into the apartment yeah. and like like i'll have him drop off a package or something like that he'll bring something by or i'll, I'll need to ask him a question he'll unsolicited he will show up to our apartment door literally asked to come into our bedroom to look at our AC unit and I'm like absolutely not yeah like, I'll be like he's like <laughs> coming yeah. out of shower naked and you'll be like he's hey Dan. Like, he, yeah he's just like he's just like here and talking and like will ask me questions about what kind of television we have and how much it costs and I'm like dude you gotta leave yeah. like now is not the time it's never the time but like, <laughs> but like in my apartment during COVID where you're not wearing a mask and you're like pushing me like get the fuck out yeah but Anyway, let's Ruth, Ruth Gordon. What a what, what a treasure! Yeah, and oh my, the other people in the cult so funny. Laura yeah. Louise, that woman. I wanted to 
absolutely bitch slap her. I was just hated her, which means that she also could have won an Academy Award yeah. for her five minutes of screen time in this movie. Yeah, the actress's name was Patsy Kelly. Shout out to her. Gosh. Also, the man who played Roman Castavet, uh, Sidney Blackmer was he his was name. Great. So creepy, so creepy and totally believable in the role. The guy who played Hutch too. Poor Hutch. Oh. Uh, Maurice Evans is his name. He was so great. Yeah, uh, top to bottom, great cast. Of course, we got to talk about Mia Farrow herself. Yeah. When you go online and look most famous Oscar snubs of all time, Mia Farrow's name always gets put on the list. She was not nominated for Best Actress. Everyone thought she would, and everyone thought she'd win on the crew. They were saying after scenes on set was, and the Oscar goes to after oh, scenes. That's, that's how. Cute. And yeah, it's kind of a travesty that she wasn't. I know you have some differing thoughts. So I feel like I could have a hot take, but my hot take sort of was tempered into a low... A simmering take. A simmering take, I guess. Yeah. So when I was watching the movie, I was not impressed. And I really thought that she overplayed the young girl. Like, yeah, the young innocence. Caricature, the young innocence. And it was kind of to the point where it was a little bit bothersome. Like her voice, honestly, like there were some times where I was like, come on, like you are 24. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's just the way that I read the book. I know that she was supposed to be sort of infantilized. Yeah. But I still felt like she had a little bit more agency. And there were sometimes too, interestingly, in the movie where I was like, wow, this is so much like Shelley Duvall's mm. portrayal of Wendy in The Shining. Like yeah. emaciated, holding a knife, terrified for her son. Yeah. Like very, very similar. And of course, this came almost 10 years before The Shining. Or oh, over 10 Stephen years. King, you got some explaining to do. Oh, well, did you, do you know what Stephen King called Ira Levin? No. As an author? He called him the Swiss watchmaker of the suspense novel. So pretty high praise from the right. literal king of the horror novel. <laughs> You're right. And I guess Stanley Kubrick would have to answer more to the Wendy comparison. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. But what I'm saying is that they obviously had a lot of respect for each other's oh, writing for sure and i think in that character they were exploring the same sort of trapped feelings like the entrapment of domestic violence and how they try to protect their offspring from a domestically violent father but getting back to mia farrow's performance as rosemary woodhouse i think i came around to it only after i started doing more research for the podcast because number one, I found out that she was actually going through some issues in her marriage with Frank Sinatra at the time. So I thought that that was interesting. And then I also, when I started putting more pieces together, I think Polanski did mean to overly infantilize that character. And I think some of the things that really brought the whole performance together for me was the costume design with the oversized buttons and the way that she carried her suitcase like a little kid. Yeah. And obviously the way that she is wafer thin. Like yeah. she is so thin and oh my gosh, the way that they portray her when she's pregnant and losing weight before the pain stops, that is 
terrifying. Like her skin is literally purple and blue and the oversized lapels and all those things. I know that that was sort of a style during the 60s, but it's really aggressively overstated. Her floral patterns, all of those things that really go into that absolutely pure nature yeah. that gets totally shattered by the oppressive gender roles and stuff like that and obviously her neighbors and stuff but so i i came around to it i think there is a place for that overly childlike performance yeah there's no denying that she does have a signature voice and sometimes it does cross into the why does she say that that way yeah. it's just so so la, 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 yeah. la, an amazing performance but i do see in some line readings it's like oh that's a little yeah the fact that she wasn't even nominated i i definitely understand how that's a snub right and i thought Sidney Blackmer would be nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Roman. I mean, he yeah, is creepy, so creepy, especially his delivery at the end. Another yeah. one of my favorite lines, the, the year is one. Oh, God. Yeah, I was, holy crap. I mean, he is so creepy. He has the eyes of his father. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. Super uh, creepy. So great. Since we're on Mia Farrow, I wanted to talk a little bit about how the structure of the book really does a good job of trapping Rosemary in her own mind, which sort of reflects her physical entrapment as well. This is a very sophisticated structure because in the beginning of the book, it's almost like a reporter would mm -hmm. talk, very objective. And about a quarter of the way through, the POV starts to shift. You get a few insights on how Rosemary is feeling from her own mind. And it really stems from her experience of pain from the pregnancy. And then as we go, we get more and more insights into how Rosemary is experiencing Guy and experiencing external things. And by the time we get to the end, we're completely trapped in her mind because she's completely isolated, which is obviously what the cult wants to do. They want her to become in their own reality and outside of any reality that would give her the realization or the epiphany that they're evil. Yeah. So that really subtle shift in POV was not something that I noticed the first time reading the book, but I think now that I've done a little bit of research and if I went back and read the book, it would really stick out. And I think, again, going back to Ira Levin's skill as an author, menstruation was not something that really any author would talk about, let alone a man in a novel. And it's just really thrown in there. Like the first time that Roseberry mentions her period, she's talking to Laura Louise and Minnie and they say, oh, you look kind of pale or something like that. And she's like, oh, it's the first day of my period. And which is honestly like how women talk about their period. Like it's just, it's something that everyone goes through. But yeah, I just thought that was a really skillful way of showing his understanding of the female experience. Yeah, it's certainly about as intimate as you can get with a character. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about her body and of mm -hmm. her being raped by the devil and yeah. having these pains and going for help from what she thinks is a reliable, safe source with Dr. Saperstein. He turns out to be the biggest piece of crap in the yeah. entire book, basically, yeah. next to the devil. Yeah. And it was even... Well, next to Guy. I think Guy oh, is yeah, the most Guy. Evil. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about Guy, but 
I wanted to mention that the audiobook is narrated by Mia Farrow. Oh, cool. So it was fun to hear her first read the whole book and then watch the movie. And it was just kind of, again, since they're so close, it's just reliving that book. Interesting. And you're really inside her mind if you you listen to Mia Farrow narrate the book and then watch Mia Farrow in the movie. I mean, that's about as intimate and close you can get with the character. And so tragic to see her go through what she goes through. But I think the end ending of the book is a little a tad more cathartic than the movie I because have this written down yeah yeah because the movie leaves it open somewhat as to what happens next whereas in the book rosemary makes a stance deciding not to kill her baby right and herself like terry did in the beginning and yeah. oh as a side note what do you think happened to terry do you think that she committed suicide on her own accord or do you think the castavets killed her because she wasn't didn't agree to be a host for the i think for sure they killed her yeah i think there's honestly in my mind there's no question and they staged i mean oh it, yeah i go back and forth it, she could have figured out the truth and have been with child in the early stages and figured out what was happening and killed herself or she could have not agreed to host the the child so the castavets killed her and then their next plan was like okay no woman will willingly host the antichrist yeah so how about let's trick a woman i into- think that's a really good point i think that terry was their first try or an early try maybe not their first but just sort of another try for some reason maybe just because i knew that terry lived with them I figured that she was aware the whole time and she sort of just lost the will to give up her baby. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why they killed her. Yeah. So going back to the different endings, something that I really enjoyed about the book was that Rosemary nails Guy and says like, don't come near my baby. And she absolutely figures out that it was him who sold the baby. It was him who caused his rival's blindness, which allowed him to get the part in the play and you know if the book went a few pages further she would have either killed guy or cast him out and said like i'm gonna raise my child but this is your fault in the movie she sort of stops right before she decides to raise adrian or andrew yeah and originally they had shot those scenes Uh but the first cut of the movie as most first cuts are was insanely long Mm -hmm. it was four hours long so they basically filmed every single scene in the book and one of the first scenes that was cut was that final scene when she Uh has that whole speech and of course in the book you hear her inner monologue of saying that even though adrian or andrew excuse me is a demon she decides to love him and and mother Mm -hmm. him and let her good-natured human personality influence him to hopefully do good i mean the line is he's half devil but half me after all yeah (laughs) that and of course she confronts guy but in the movie all she does is spit on him and then it it ends with her lovingly looking at the baby in her acting is nuanced enough for you the viewer to be like oh she's kind of coming around to the fact that maybe she can mother him of course she's going to run into roadblocks with the whole cult (laughs) wanting to raise him too but the cult views her as his mother which she is so you can kind of fill in the blanks yourself in the movie i do wish she had a little more of a speech at the end of saying like i'm not gonna let you guys right totally parent my child but 
Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. We touched on gender roles earlier, but when I first read the book, I was like, oh, it's right for the cult to invite her in and to want her to raise the child as her own because as Roman says, she is after all the mother or whatever he says. Mm -hmm. But going back and looking at the story as a whole, the thing that probably galled me the most was how the first night the cast of Etz have dinner with Guy and Rosemary, they don't even consider going to Rosemary first and asking, can we have your baby? Yeah. They go straight to the man who clearly is the head of household, straight over Rosemary's head. And he, no question, basically without batting an eye, says, this is the way that I can get ahead. Yeah. And of course he uses that as an excuse and saying, Rosemary, I did it for us. I did it so that we could have a better life. And he says like, look at this as an opportunity for us. Yeah, look but, at how much we gain in return. Exactly, yeah. and, and we're basically losing nothing. Like just forget about the baby. We can move to Hollywood and have another one and just start over. And I think it cancels out the sweet nature of that offer of like, go ahead and raise your son, even though he's the antichrist. Yeah. I think it really, if you think about it a little bit deeper, it's actually way more fucked up because what they're saying is like, this is your role now. This is all you're good for is the childbearing and mothering part. You're not going to be a part of the conversation about consent. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting conversation too. I mean, we haven't even touched about how religion factors into this. Yeah. But it's a really interesting conversation about marital rape and how even if you're married, even if you're in a relationship, rape can happen because if one of the two partners is not consenting, you are not allowed to touch that person sexually. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. And I was actually, again, the fact that these themes come out in this book that was written in 1967, they hold up. And the way that Rosemary actually speaks up when she finds out that Guy, well, Guy tells her that it was him that had sex with her when she was passed out. The fact that she speaks up and says, you shouldn't have done that. And then unfortunately, as he gaslights her, that falls away because mm -hmm. she finds out that she's pregnant and she's happy. But it's really disturbing to think about how many women could have been and probably have been raped in their marriage and then had a child as a result. Yes, I agree. And you talked about a lot there. So Sorry. I'm going to comment on the No, you don't. I'm going yeah. to talk about the cast of Ets not coming to Rosemary to ask about harboring the, the yeah. Antichrist. I think that ties back to my theory of how Terry probably was asked by the Kastovets and she said no, which is why the Kastovets killed her mm -hmm. or they willed her into suicide. Mm -hmm. And then they decided not to ask Rosemary and go ahead with the whole plan. And, mm -hmm. you know, before we get to the marital rape angle, I think a big theme that the movie tackles is secrecy between mm -hmm. couples. Many times these secrets can manifest into contempt mm -hmm. and you can view your partner as getting in the way of your career or aspirations, mm -hmm. whatever. Of course, this movie is a scathing indictment of secrecy, but it also opens up dialogue of how no matter the issue, couples should talk it out. Mm -hmm. Whether guys should have, in a healthy relationship, maybe should have had a conversation with Rosemary about how having a baby 
in that point of his life wasn't the right turn for his career, but instead he takes the first chance he can get in kind of a monkey's paw type storyline. It's funny, a monkey paws storyline shows up in Wonder Woman 84, which Again, don't, you, watch it. don't watch that movie. But yeah, so secrecy and lies, it, contempt between couples it is a big theme in this mm-hmm. movie. Definitely. So communication is always key is the theme here, as it was the theme in a completely different story about a crumbling relationship marriage story, which mm. we saw last year yeah. on Netflix. That's a great movie about a couple who simply don't communicate. That's the one and only reason why they get divorced, but it's a huge reason. And if you don't establish this communication where you can both be vulnerable and both say what the other does that makes you feel less than or unheard. Well, in your example shows how enduring this theme is. Yeah. Because Rosemary is consciously aware that this is an issue that they're struggling with in their marriage. Guy does not seem to realize this. He just sort of thinks of him as the head of the house and what he says goes and he doesn't need to support her emotionally at all. But when Rosemary finds out that she's pregnant, she says, let this be a turning over of the leaf. And I want to make sure that we're communicating and we're open. That's the word she uses. She says, I want to make sure that we're open with each other going forward. Now, this goes in one ear and out Guy's other ear. Yeah. And he does feel guilty. Remember, like, when she brings up the fact that he won't meet her eye and he won't touch her or really have anything to do with her after he's sold the baby. Yeah, he's just so ashamed and embarrassed. Right. Yeah. But she does know consciously that it's an issue. Yeah. And then now the second thing you were talking about, consent, you already said the example of the Kastovets not asking Rosemary if she would harbor the Antichrist. But that's a great one-to-one comparison for marital rape. Mm -hmm. By not asking her, they basically more or less raped her as well by Mm -hmm. setting up the whole plan, the the whole ritual. Mm -hmm. And that just shows that consent does not just apply to sex. I mean, that seems like that's the most important thing, Mm -hmm. obviously, because rape is a terrible, Mm -hmm. awful crime. But you know, and just every, everyday things, activities, career choices. You know, if, if Guy wants to do a project that requires him to move, obviously Rosemary's consent in that move is mm-hmm. going to play a big part. Let's go back yeah. to Gone Girl, way back in episode seven or eight. Yeah. Nick, in that story, makes the decision to move to Missouri to yeah. care after his mom. A, a noble move, but it was a move that he did not consult Amy about. Mm -hmm. Of course, Amy is crazy, but the thing is, you can argue that the contempt between the couple, the seed, was planted there. Yeah. Amy was not consulted in the move at all. They just moved right away, left their whole entire life, and that's where all the trouble started, from that one decision where Nick did not get consent. So, you know, the metaphor tracks of how in a relationship, at any point, not just sex, you need consent for everything or else problems are going to arise very quickly. Yeah, resentment is a really big deal, and it only grows. Yeah. For instance, I resent every time Laura... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You're good at that. You're going to air our dirty laundry on air. Yeah. Speaking of dirty laundry, that's something Laura resents I do. I just leave it out. No, (laughs) that's true. Jenny does all the laundry, so I... Right, but I also leave it out at the same time. This is a good couples therapy, (laughs) this this podcast, to be honest. Well, if we want to move on from the theme of consent 
The other thing that I wanted to talk about was this theme of religion, which I think is probably the most obvious theme. Right. Because we're talking about Rosemary, who has a very obvious metaphor in her name. She carries rose, which is sort of a Catholic symbol of, you know, the rosary, but also Mary, and she's the mother, mother, (laughs) right, of the Antichrist, (laughs) rather than Mary the Virgin or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Don't don't quiz me on Christianity because I'm not going to have any answers. But another theme that's probably one of the most overt throughout the book is religion and specifically Catholicism and its restrictive attitude toward female body autonomy. Yeah. And so obviously we start with Rosemary, who's Catholic. And in the movie, there are flashbacks, which are dream sequences of her troublesome Catholic past encounters with yeah. Catholicism yeah. yeah oh and uh Roman or Roman their neighbor it's like Roman Catholic yeah, but he's right. obviously the in the perverted sense and I think what's really interesting about that is how it's taken a really long time for people to admit that the Catholic Church has a lot of issues, not only now, but throughout history, has been a very toxic presence. Mm-hmm. And you know what's really interesting, too? The theme is really subtle in the beginning, but there are so many times where religious words are used as swear words. So, for example, they say stuff like, oh my God, oh Jesus, Christ, that's a hell of a way to get apart. What the hell? Like, all of these things are really, really subtle in the beginning, but all of those are things that either guy says or roman says rosemary as kind of a hint she's still linked to her catholic past doesn't say those things and then later when she's talking to her female friends in the kitchen at the party and she's crying about the pain that she's been in due to the pregnancy she says i won't get an abortion that's Mm -hmm. like her first reaction to them just saying like go get a second opinion about your pain yeah so she's clearly sort of holding on to this toxic religion that's been a part of her life and has really come to overshadow a lot of her actions and her reactions to things. I think it's a really interesting critique, especially now where the conversation of pro-choice is so discussed in politics, which it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a political issue, but right. yeah. uh, but, it, but it's just very interesting that, again, this male author is very aware of how toxic the Catholic religion has been toward women and toward choice and the female sexual experience. The fact that he was aware of that and wrote a book about how toxic that influence has been is very interesting. Yeah, I can't imagine how blasphemous this book and movie was when it came out in the late 60s. I have a fun fact about that. Do you want to hear it? When this book was translated into Spanish and it was going to be published in Spain, Spain was actually experiencing the Francoist dictatorship, Mm. which lasted from 1936 to like 1975, I think. The censors under the Francoist government took out a lot of this book that they believed glorified Satan. But the thing that's really interesting is that in a 2019 printing of this book, those parts remain cut. Hmm. Which again, just sort of shows how enduring oppressive things can be and because we just (laughs) we just had an episode on fahrenheit 451 of that whole censorship and kind of and how the government decides what people can or can't 
have an opinion on. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm more confused about how in today's progressive climate, how government is still tied to things like abortion. It's just, I've never understood the link. I used to live next to a Planned Parenthood in, in Boston and I'd walk by it every day and there'd be protesters. And I remember there was a, a guy protesting the protesters, asking them why they think the things they did and they'd always mention the Bible and the guy would cut them off being like, what, why are you bringing up this old book? Yeah. Like who get, we're talking about people here. Yeah. Like who gives a shit about a book? Like it's great that you love a book. And Patton Oswald <laughs> has that joke too. Yeah. It's like, we, you know, good for you. You like a book. But we're talking about people now. Yeah. Why are you letting a... But so anyways, that's a whole Shout other thing. Shout out to people who work at Planned Parenthood. They're yeah. the real heroes. But then, anyways, everything. I'll get off my soapbox and get on another soapbox. Okay, I need to choose my words carefully. I would never support or prop up a cult that wants to bring Satan into this world or the Antichrist into this world. <laughs> yeah. However, I've been thinking about this ever since I heard it on an episode of Tosh.0. I can't believe I'm referencing <laughs> Tosh.0. But he, he interviewed a Satanist, which I know is different than, than this cult in this movie. But the Satanist was talking about how demonic worship is the only religion, the only religion that accepts anyone. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just thought the irony in that of, you know, some religions, I mean, especially Catholicism that preaches love, but has such a hard line on things like gay marriage and yeah. abortion. And I just thought, wow, what a compelling think piece. The fact that Satanists, that's the only religion where anyone can join. Now, obviously their agenda is a little twisted. I mean, they, they're worshiping Satan, but there are no restrictions. Anyone is welcome in yeah. the church of Satan. So I just thought that's kind of a... Good for them. Kind of a, Right. And I mean, it, they've figured something out. Again, I'm not supporting them. I just think it's very compelling. And it made me think of the irony of, of, uh, of religion, especially Christianity, that this movie uh, so harshly critiques yeah. in a great yeah. way. And, and, and no one comes out unscathed. Except it, for Rosemary. And except for, well, I guess her character isn't critiqued, but her, her life is certainly messed up a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I have a really interesting fun fact that I've been harboring Lay since it on the beginning me. of the episode. Lay do it you, on do me. Do you think you know this fun fact? I, this let's see. We'll mind see. Mind-blowing to me. Okay. So the exterior shots at the beginning and the end of the movie are in New York, and... It is specifically the Dakota apartment buildings. Mm. Do you know anything specific about the Dakota apartment buildings? No. So that is where John Lennon and Yoko Ono lived during his assassination in 1980. Oh. And she still lives. And there's actually a really interesting conversation about why she still lives there in Elton John's memoir, Me, that came out recently. It's really good. Go read it. So that's interesting on its own. But the thing that's really interesting too is that the Bramford was named after Bram Stoker from oh. Dracula. So Ira Levin used that name because he wanted to name it after something very dark and sinister, which I think is really cool too, because something we talked about in the Shining episode, the biggest difference, I guess, between the book and the movie is that in the book, the hotel is haunted and it's possessed. And that's what drives Jack crazy. In the movie, it's the people who 
go and sort of bring that darkness into the building. But this is almost in between, right? And I kind of loved how the building is characterized by this dark, sinister stuff that in the beginning of the book, Hutch warns Rosemary and Guy about, but they don't listen. And like you said, dark things happen in every apartment. Yeah. But this seems to be a little bit further than that. Like it's kind of a vortex in a way, kind of like The Shining Hotel. I thought that was just kind of fun, Yeah, the setting. I guess my closing thoughts and fun fact, we can praise the story all we want, but I think some praise should go to the technical achievements of the movie. Mm. I mean, it is, like we said, so long, but feels so short. And mm-hmm. the cinematography is pretty incredible, especially for the time. It's a lot of handheld shots, it made it very intimate and one takes. You know I'm a sucker for one takes. Oh, he's a sucker. And for this one movie takes. has some amazing one takes. I mean the phone booth scene, oh, that's yeah. that's iconic. Oh, it's so tense. And also I think the scariest scene probably ever <gasps> was when about. she's escaping Dr. Saperstein yes. and Guy in the apartment. She locks them out. But then they go through the back way and you just see two cult members <gasps> creep past the doorway as she's on the phone calling and for her help. her back is turned yeah. to them. It's so, so creepy and <gasps> so many copycats of that. It Chapter 2 copied that shot, mm. but so much better in this movie. It's, so It's funny because it's like kind of comical. Right. The way that they're, they're sort like of tiptoeing yeah. is like a cartoon. Like... The Pink Panther. But, but it makes it even creepier. Oh, but it's so creepy. A fun fact is the scene where Rosemary walks in front of traffic, according to Mia Farrell, that was spontaneous and genuine on that oh, wow. day. Roman Polanski said that, uh, quote, no one will hit a pregnant woman. And Mia Farrell was like, okay. So they just went out and shot that. That wasn't in the script. They went out and shot that and... Luckily, he was right. No car did hit her, but those cars were not extras or paid actors. That was real. They just went out into traffic and shot <laughs> The them. other ones don't stop. Yeah. <laughs> so we just so, watched Elf. <laughs> so yeah, but that's kind of my final thoughts. The movie is just a marvel. Again, even if you're spoiled, which if you listen to this podcast, you are, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the movie is just an astounding achievement. So scary, genuine, yeah. talking about real themes that all couples should contemplate and talk about. So Gaslighting, don't do it. Don't, hey, yeah, don't do it. <laughs> Gaslighting is a sin. It's a 10 commandment to not gaslight anybody. Four stars for the book and movie. Go read and watch it immediately. If you don't, lose my number, Laura. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Four out of four stars for both the book and the movie. Highly recommend both. And I think that's, I mean. All she wrote. I mean, yeah. we could talk about this for much longer. That's like all the great books and movies. We, the episodes could go on much longer, but you got to go on with your day. Do we got to go on with our day. The, sorry, the only thing that I wanted to add, the, the most awful moment of gaslighting in the whole entire movie is when Guy describes her postpartum depression after losing her baby after they literally lie about her baby dying is you had the prepartum crazies yeah oh my god I swear I almost broke our television and I broke the book too I ripped I ripped that page out and used it as toilet paper I was so angry I don't blame you (laughs) I don't blame you can you imagine having your partner telling you that after losing lying about losing her baby he's saying oh you just had the prepartum uh what's the word uh, the crazies the hysteria oh my gosh yeah if anyone ever uses the word hysteria or crazy around me they're gonna end up with a missing a part of their body i guess i think i can guess which part <laughs> 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 and on that note 
we shall end. But we'll be back next week with another, another episode. episode. This has been great. Oh boy, it's just oh man, I love talking about great pieces no, of work. We gotta wrap it up though. Yeah, wrap it up. Okay, well, hail, uh, hail Satan. <laughs> um, <laughs> hail, hail, no, hail Andrew. Andrew. And hail Rosemary. Hail Rosemary. The mother of the king who will tear down the Christian temples. You know, there's a sequel to this. It came out in 1997. Oh, I do. Son of Rosemary. And yeah. it's all about her son. Yep. It was given zero stars by Roger Ebert. Hell and the yeah. And the sequel book was also torn apart by yes. critics. So yeah, this oh, needs was, no it was sequel. It's all a dream. That's the whole thing in the sequel. La, 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 la. Fade out. La 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 la. la, la. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye.